Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. The author of Big Dirty Money. The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime. Jennifer Taub is here. We're going to talk to her in a minute. But first, members of QAnon gathered in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, because they thought that JFK Jr. would appear alive and well and announce himself as Trump's true vice president and that I guess the switch was on and the gig was up and that he was going to be the VP and Trump was going to return to the White House. I, I'm i not really sure. There were hundreds of people in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, because they believed that this was actually going to happen. Let's unpack that just for a minute, okay? Because you have to You have to really suspend your disbelief here because there's a couple of things at play. First, you have to believe that JFK Jr., who died decades ago, faked his death and has been alive this whole time. Got to believe that. Second, you have to believe that if JFK Jr., the son of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, famous progressively liberal president, was alive and well, he would somehow be a Trumper. Have to believe that. Third, you'd also have to believe that even though it doesn't say it anywhere in the Constitution, JFK Jr., who is alive and well, the son of a progressive president who is somehow a Trumper, somehow alive and well, somehow going to announce himself as the vice president of Trump and in such a way that he can reassume power and make some sort of switcheroo legally and that this was actually going to happen. You'd have to believe all of those things, all of those things, 
And not only that, you would have to believe that JFK Jr., who is alive and well, who's the son of a progressive president and yet somehow a Trumper, who's going to announce himself as the vice president and announce himself as the vice president of Donald Trump and announce that he's got some sort of secret plan to reinstall Trump in the White House with him as vice president and that he would pick, of all the places on earth, he would pick the place where his father got assassinated. That's what you'd have to believe in order to believe this stuff. And like, I don't know, is there, is there a limit? Like, I don't get it. Do the people that write this shit just sit around thinking, ah, you know, it'd be funny. Let's get these idiots to go to Dealey Plaza. I mean, it makes no sense. What do they think? Was Zabruder Jr. going to be there with like an iPhone 12 or whatever? Filming the whole thing? The half Corsican hiding behind the grassy knoll? What about Son of Umbrella Man? Is Ted Cruz going to be there? I mean, what the fuck is wrong with these people? It's really bad shit. Like, I can't, people believe crazy shit. We've talked about this on the show before. People believe crazy stuff. I believe crazy things. We all do. But you've got nothing better to do with your time on a weekday than go to Dealey Plaza, which is just a, it, it's just a, a, a bunch of grass in the middle of a very busy highways. It's not like any great shakes, Dealey Plaza, right? And hang out there. You know, you think this magical thing is going to happen? Like, it it's insane and there are people that believe this and they believe it for a variety of reasons i get it they've been they've been preyed upon by disinformation and fox news and these conspiracy theories and probably partly because the actual media sucks so bad that they know intuitively that that they can't trust it because they're not telling them the full truth which is true yet this is what they choose to believe i don't know it's crazy it's crazy to me it's funny it's funny for sure, but it is crazy. It's nuts. It's nuts. Something else today, this very day, Friday, November 5th, marks the two-year anniversary of the Prevail Substack. I have been writing columns on Substack for two full years. Now, when I started, I was only doing two a week, and then I upped that to the Sunday pages. So I've written three columns a week for two years, which is, um, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. And I want to thank everybody for reading. I want to thank everybody for subscribing because I really do rely on the subscriptions. It really does help. I enjoy doing it. I love that people are reading this stuff. And I just want to say thank you um, to everybody that reads, that subscribes, that shares the pieces on, on Twitter, on Facebook, or Meta, I suppose now it's called. I want to thank you guys. Um, if you have not subscribed and you'd like to, you just go right to that substack, which is gregoliar.com and check it out. If you've not subscribed to this show that you're listening to, please do. The show that you're listening to doesn't cost anything. It's totally free. All you got to do is hit the little like plus button on your, uh, if, if you're looking at it on your iPhone, there's a little plus button that you hit. That'll help me out a lot. So two years of prevail. Jen Tob is going to be along in a minute. She's really great. She, I, her book, uh, Big Dirty Money, is now out in paperback. I highly recommend that everybody go buy this and, and read it because she does a great intro to what white-collar crime, so-called, is, how it got the name, how the system kind of works the way it does. I mean, she's a law professor, so she knows a lot about, obviously, about the law and how these things work and 
how certain things are prosecuted and other things aren't. And this is a big theme. It's a big theme in society. It's a big theme of, of people that have a lot of money getting away with things that we don't like to see, right? And I think that the more that we understand what the problem is, the easier it's going to be to sell this to, to the American public. Like, I think people like the idea of, hey, rich people should pay more taxes. And that's complicated. I get that it's complicated because a lot of the net worth of super rich people is tied up in the stocks that they own, which they're not selling. And, you know, you can't charge people taxes on stuff that they just have like that, I guess. It's, it's complicated. It's more complicated than it sounds. But there are things that are going on now. Biden, President Biden in Rome with leaders of the G20, they're trying to make a minimum corporate tax globally, which they're working on, on doing a 15% minimum global tax on corporations so that a, a company like a Facebook or an Amazon or whoever can't just be like, oh, we're not an American company. We're set up shop in Luxembourg or whatever. And they avoid paying taxes that way. If we can figure out a way to tax these corporations at a, at a fair rate, it really will help so much. It'll pay for so many things. It'll just make everyone's life better. And I think it's hard for people to really grasp how that can be, how some kind of boring seeming news article can in fact make your life better. But I, I assure you it will. The more money that we have coming into the system that corporations should be paying, the better. I mean, these guys, you know, Bezos and, and Mark Zuckerberg and these other uber rich people, they preside over these vast corporations and the corporations don't pay enough. You know, it's one thing if you, you want to tax the rich, tax the corporations. That's who should pay, be paying more taxes. So I'm all in favor of this. I hope it happens. And it ties in with all the stuff. It ties in with dirty money. It ties in with dark money. It ties in with corruption. So um, anyway, I'm excited for her uh, to come on and talk. She only had half an hour. We, we, had, a, we had a shorter interview that, that easily could have gone longer, but uh, it, it, it's great. So we'll have that for you in a minute. Before we get to Jen, I wrote a piece recently for Dame Magazine. My friend Jennifer Reitman, who is the founder and publisher of Dame, suggested that I write something that sort of explains kind of what the fuck is going on, like a general overview. How did this happen? How does this stuff all connect? What's happening here? So I kind of did. I mean, it's hard to do, but I kind of tried. And I thought it was a pretty good piece, and I think it lends itself well to audio format. Plus, it's not on my Substack; It's on Dame, which is a great magazine that people should support. So after we talk to Jennifer Taub, I'm going to read that. So that's the order of operations. We'll be right back with Jennifer Top. We go now live to the quarterly meeting of the Texas Republican Oversight of Literature League. That's Troll for short, where Troll senior staff are deciding which novels to pull from the shelves of the local high schools. What's next, please? Remembrance of Things Past by Marcel Proust. A disgusting self-indulgent work by a limp-wristed Frenchman. His evocative description of biting into that Madeline cookie encourages sexual perversity and obesity. Strike it from the list, please. Yes, sir. The next book is Ulysses by James Joyce. Putrid filth. Listen to this. Mr. Bloom, with careful hand, recomposed his wet shirt. Oh, Lord, that little limping devil begins to feel cold and clammy. After effect, not pleasant. Still, you have to get rid of it some way. They don't care. Complimented, perhaps. Go home to nicey bread and milky and say night prayers with the kitties. 
How can pros such as that not drive our Texas boys to onanistic self-abuse? Remove it. Yes, sir. Moby Dick. Promotes homosexuality. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uses the N-word. Ethan Frome. Glamorizes suicide by sled. Anna Karenina. Glamorizes suicide by locomotive. Lolita. Come again. Lolita. The committee has no problem with Lolita. But Lolita's about a grown man who has a love affair with a tween girl. Yeah, the committee has no problem with Lolita. Grown man. 12-year-old girl. Lolita stays. Next. That was the Texas Republican Oversight of Literature League. Troll. And now, back to the show. Jennifer Taub, welcome back to the Prevail Podcast. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to talk to you, although this morning um, we're talking, it's it's Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. as we're recording this, and we have seen that Virginia has lost uh, the state house to the Republican uh, MAGA candidate, and it's very close in New Jersey, and I felt a little bit that familiar pit in my stomach of dread and, oh shit, this morning. I was not following this stuff very carefully because I thought, you know, it's going to happen no matter what I do. I'll just sometimes if, if there's a, a a series in basketball that I'm involved with and it's like game five, I just won't watch because like, yeah, if they win, I'll watch game six, you know, and if they lose, then they're they're out and I don't have to keep watching. So I'd rather just not put myself through the emotional misery. So where's your head at this morning? Yeah, I mean, I guess I feel a little guilty that I kind of decided to do some self-care and not watch the returns on television last night, kind of in the same vein that you were, which is there are a lot of political issues I'm watching at the local level and nationally. And I know, I know the connection between um, having Virginia be a red state in terms of the governor. I get what that means for the whole electoral college mess that we might be entering, but Mm -hmm. It's not the only state. I also understand the symbolism of this being, you know, what do they say, you know, that this uh, young kid is kind of like Trump in a Brooks Brothers suit or someone said in a Mitt Romney suit, you know, this is a Trojan horse. But, you know, the reality is that's America. And what, you know, I'm not somebody who came in with, um, no matter what the outcome, I'm going to attach that to my preconceived notion of politics. What I'm observing right now is that this election reveals a lot of things. Maybe it reveals this guy, you know, McAuliffe didn't run a good campaign. What I think it reveals is that America is still a country that's very much um, committed to white, um, I don't want to say white nationalism, I guess I would say white supremacy, you know, the fear of critical uh, race theory and people don't even know what it is or who created it or any of this, you know, um, which I do, we can talk about critical race theory if you like. (laughs) Um, you know, but, but that, you know, that there's, there's, and that this is, this is Virginia, right. And, but what I'd like to, so I get that also that Trump is really popular, but like if anyone had asked you and I, we would say, you know, we're in this kind of interregnum now and we might not be shouting that our hair is on fire, but I have been ever since the insurrection quite worried that, and the big lie the Republicans keep championing, um, that, you know, this, and and the sort of cover up of the insurrection that we're in this place right now where it's not good. This is not the end of the story. This is just 
you know, we're just at the end of the first act. And so maybe people can see that. And I don't know where that leaves us. Um, but what I would say is in my part of the world, a lot of good change happened. I, in um, a town near mine, I live in Northampton, Massachusetts, Holyoke, which has the largest per capita representation of the Puerto Rican diaspora, just finally elected a Latino mayor. You know, that's great. You know, you know, you're like, well, so that's one small town. But I think town by town, if people look, I think that- It's not know, small towns. Boston and New York City too. Oh, Boston yeah. just elected Michelle Wu, New York City, Eric Adams. You know, and I know, anyway, so, you know, that's how I wake up this morning. I wake up this morning in a tossed salad. Um, I don't wake up this morning in a sip <laughs> of despair. That's good. I like <laughs> 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 salad over soup, salad greater than sign soup, right? That's, <laughs> that's the thing. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I worry also, or I caution people listening about reading too much into certainly Virginia anyway. I think Terry McAuliffe, I don't know much about him, but he seems like basically a retread candidate. He's so associated with the Clintons in not a good way that, you know, anybody looking at him from outside is just going to see that. And apart from everything else, though, I think this is something of a narrative war where their side, as you said, focused on this critical race theory, which now isn't even really critical race theory anymore. It's just a dog whistle. It's a simple dog whistle for we don't want our schools to teach about how fucking racist we are. That's what it now means. Whatever the, the I, I know that the official legal definition That's it is a stand in for that. Yes. Our our narrative on our side is, holy shit, these fuckers try to overthrow the election. Nobody's doing anything about it. And they're all crooks. But. That narrative dies when nothing happens, when yeah. there's this sort of this perceived or actual inactivity at DOJ. Um, oh, just... God. <laughs> That's my first oh, question, by the way. Okay, so here I have been sailing above the fray, a mature person not having emotions, and you just punched me in the flipping <laughs> gut. <laughs> yes. Well... Oh, that's my narrative. You just hit my narrative. <laughs> <laughs> the, the narrative is, you know, our narrative is going to be perceived as true when people start getting indicted. And until that happens, and not just, you know, the QAnon shaman guy, you know, actual people who planned this thing. Yeah, but That's wait, hold on, Greg, you said our narrative, but there's a dueling narrative, right? Like, I don't, yeah. see it. so for me, that saying that we need, for me saying there needs, you know, without action without justice, then this, then people will continue to repeat their behavior and only escalates and people who are going to, who are corrupt and dangerous will continue to gain a mass power because that's how power works. That's one narrative, right? And that's why you were, you're, you're saying, that's what we're saying. We've got to act, you know, Garland's got to move it, you know, faster. Like what the heck is Steve Bannon still sitting around out in public yeah. for a number of reasons. Okay, that's one thing, but my deep down narrative that you kind of hit that nerve is the one that I have lived through. You know, I remember the, the global financial crisis and there were no consequences. Mm -hmm. So the, the real one you just hit is when you said that, you know, until something you know, is that maybe nothing, maybe there are no consequences. I hate to, to mention Woody Allen um, in this context, but I'm talking about his film here. He wrote a, a, a wonderful film called Crimes and Misdemeanors. And I know I'm not happy with him as a human, but I'd like to talk about that piece of art. That's, that's a, that's a that's one of his best movies, by the way. Okay. If, if not his best, so. Yeah. I love Proof Rock by T.S. Eliot, I'm Jewish, you know, I can do these things. So anyway, crimes and misdemeanors. Oh, spoiler alert. 
someone commits a murder, a commission's a murder and nothing happens, you know? Yep. And that seemed pretty, that seemed like a lot for me to take in when it came out. I must've been in my twenties or thirties, but that's kind of how I'm feeling right now about the Garland Justice Department when it comes to um, all of the Trump uh, Michigas. And it feels really, it feels really hard. And, and, and also specifically about not giving Congress the power it needs to investigate, you know, attempt to overthrow the election. We know more and more about John Eastman. We know, we know exactly what we suspected was true. And it's like, um, can I just do one more analogy? If you liked the, the, the soup of despair, I'm sure you've had the dream before. I, I hope you've had this dream. Have you had the dream where you're like lost somewhere and like you don't have your wallet and your keys and your and then all you have is a phone, but you keep trying to dial the number, but you can't reach the person. Have you ever had that dream? Um, every night I have a dream like that, <laughs> like some and kind of similar. Shouting yeah. into the phone and you know it reminds me of that. You're just like I can't. I'm not. Con this is not connecting with the people I need to connect with. You know, and that's kind of how I feel. Like I don't know how Merrick Garland sleeps at night. You know, I, I think he's a good man, but did he have an emotional? Um, and political lobotomy somewhere along the way. Cause I feel like, uh, you know, so again, you touched a nerve, that's my fear. You know, the election of McAuliffe to me is only is a tiny piece of this larger problem. So that's where, you know, that's where I'm stewing. Merrick Garland, now I think my, my take on him is that he's just in over his head. I think he's a good man. I don't think he's corrupt or anything. I think he's just, he's been, in the judiciary, he's been on that court for so long that he's forgotten how normal people behave. And I've said this before. It's like when H.W. Bush during that campaign went to the supermarket and didn't understand how the scanners worked. Remember that? And everybody was like, oh, this guy's really out of touch. I, I had been saying this guy's just out of touch. And then he admitted it. He said, uh, I've been insulated in the monastery of the judiciary, which as soon as those words uttered his lips, he should have been fired, honestly. Because well, I gotta say this, it's so, I, I, I feel exactly what you're saying because I just experienced it. The other day I wrote um, a very detailed legal research memo in connection with a, um, an arcane topic of civil procedure. It, 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 I don't want to get into it, but as I was getting into this and I consulted, I consulted with several law professors, this was a, it's a real live issue, it's really obscure, so fun. And I was back into that. I'm a first year associate at a law firm working on a memo. And the, the, the joy of the mental project, piecing it apart, you know, up till two in the morning, editing it the next day. And I was like, I felt, you know, it felt like pure and good and safe and comfortable. And for someone with any kind of obsessive personality disorder or whatever, <laughs> that felt like good. And I said to myself, boy, I miss I miss that world. And as you're saying this, that is the monastery. And yeah. there is something for, you know, there's something very comforting about saying, well, I don't, you know, you know, I'm calling balls and strikes, you know, I'm just looking at this and it's a puzzle in and of itself. And this is fascinating, you know, and then I step back out into the world and I'm like, well, the world's a little messier and you got to do things on the fly and it's not really tight and perfect. You know, you hear people, you hear economists talking about this, about how beautiful math is, right? This is that kind of thing, a logic puzzle that you can kind of crack through, figure out and undo and write about. You know, I could live in that world, I suppose, but like, that's a monastery. Like, let's get messy and be out in the world. People are really suffering out in the world who don't have, you know, and also, by the way, there's kind of arrogance to people like me 
is doing this. Because like when I'm in that little puzzle of a world and say, I wish I'd like to stay in that world because then I feel good about how my brain is being used and it's perfect and it's not wrong. You know, that's all well and good. But anyone trained with our kind of training could live in those kinds of worlds. But, you know, but, you know, I think I prefer someone speaking of the food analogy. What is his name? Andre, uh, who's the, the chef? Who uh, goes, Jose Andreas or something. Yeah, right, I know so what you mean. Andreas is a genius chef, obviously. He could be in the world of flavor and just do that, right? And just serve. He's going out into the messy world where I'm sure the, the mass quantities of food he's making for disaster victims aren't at that precise level of seasoning and flavor and ingredients. I don't know that he might, you know, it's not white truffles for everybody. Right. And, you know, I just, I just think someone who has decided, that, someone who's never been a Jose Andre, someone who's never gotten their hands messy in the world, there's a reason for it. That's so. I'm saying exactly what you said, but in a longer, drawn out way. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I think it's it, it, it's good, and and I like all these food analogies. It's making me hungry. We have salad. We have white truffles now. Um, okay, you mentioned Steve Bannon before, and this is the thing that gets me. Like, I get okay. People were like, let's arrest Steve Bannon immediately when he said he wouldn't, you know, do the subpoena. And of course, you can't do that because he's not technically violating a subpoena until he doesn't show up. Right. Right. Or do whatever he's supposed to do. So they did. And, you know, legal Twitter likes to be like, well, uh, you know, you can't do that because uh, the (laughs) the memo says that. So they they, we've now done everything by the book. We you know, they waited the time. They referred it to DOJ. Everybody said, oh, last time this happened or somebody during the Reagan administration, it took X number of days. We're now well beyond X number of days. So I don't understand. Like, this is a guy, this isn't some schmo. He's on a podcast that's really popular where he is fomenting sedition. That's what he's doing. He was already indicted and pardoned. He was part oh. of this J- J6 thing. Why Why are we not? Okay. And, and also, what does it matter? He's going to go to Congress and be like, I plead, take the fifth. You know, it doesn't okay. even make any difference. Here's what I, you know, I'm going to draw back to the me and my little monastery, right? The, okay. What I, my, you know, I can't see, but let's go with our little camera into, let's go in our, uh, hey, okay, Greg, let's put on our invisible cloaks and let's go into the Justice Department. Are you with me? I'm there. Oh, hey, they're in early. There are 20 different lawyers, not 20. There's there's three or four different lawyers and they're busy. Their heads are down and they're typing and they've got earphones on and they're researching something. What are they doing, Greg? Oh, I know what they're doing. Merrick Garland's assigned them to hunt down every, you know, cross every T and dot every I and do all the research that Bannon's lawyers would be doing to defend him in court against every possible angle if we end up going forward with the congressional recommendation of an indictment. And I think that they're literally having these people do what they do. And he wants to, he's acting like a judge and he's probably treating the Department of Justice employees like clerks and trying to hunt down every possible defense, but that's not your job in law enforcement, all you need is the probable, the more likely than not that this is criminal. And I think he's, this is what the fear here goes back to the same exact thing, article two, executive privilege. And this is why there's still a memo on the flipping books saying from Bill Barr to Bill Barr, the day the Mueller report was, was released. And I think we've talked about this and there's still this memo on the books saying, um, we don't think, regardless of whether there was obstruction of, of, of uh, the administrative proceeding here, we don't think a president can do that. And that's still on the books. And I think this is that same issue, even though Bannon was not actually working for the president at the time. I'm sure they're hunting down every possible thing and stalling and stalling and stalling. And, you know, um, 
justice delayed is justice denied. I mean, this is, and that's, that's not the job responsibility. The job response, that's not, you're not supposed to defend the criminals. That's not your job in the justice department. Yeah. It reminds me again, going back to the movie analogies, it reminds me of the scene in life of Brian where, you know, he's, uh, he's literally on the cross about to die and she comes in like, you have to help him. And they just sit and they're like, uh, yes, motion to da da da. And they can't oh, get right. out of, they right. can't get out of their stupid parliamentary procedure bullshit. They just, they can't do it. And then when they finally show up, all they do is read some bullshit. They read a memo. That's what they do. They read a fucking memo. That's what we're living through now. We're living yeah. through life of Brian and- <laughs> <laughs> well, also speaking of life of Brian, don't we? I forgot the different um, groups that on the, the the Jewish left that are fighting each other. Oh my God, so funny! Okay, right. So don't watch that movie now. It's going to be painful. <laughs> it's the Judean People's Front. Well, the it's, People's Front of Judea. Yeah, it's, it's going to be like the Progressive Caucus versus like the Far Left. I, whatever. We're going to like you can that movie. That movie holds up. It holds always up. On the bright side of life, always. <laughs> So funny right next right right down to the aliens showing up because that's how that's how fucked we are there's news about oh we saw these ufos and literally no one cares what, what i what i want to draw out right now which i think is so important though is the power of art i know that's not the topic here but what gets me through any of these difficult times is the power of art and the power of irony and the ability to speak you and i are still talking you can broadcast this however you want in this country we can still have satire um, you know, uh, and it's not great. It's not it doesn't save anything. The political situation is bad and getting worse. Um, but you know, I'm still gonna take the piss out of people and still laugh a lot at myself and everything else because that's what gets me through that. And so I know I'm making comedy the only kind of art form <laughs> at this moment. Um, but there's other art, right? There's art and there's food and there's children um, and there's other things. Not that we should ignore where we are, but we have to find some joy. Um, and look on the bright side of life. I mean, as at the end of John Irving's um, GARP, what is the last line? Sorry, spoiler alert, is uh, in the end, we're all terminal cases, you know? So yeah, always look yeah. on the bright side of life. Yeah, spoiler alert. And my, my son used to have a shirt because sort of sometimes it was a morbid phase and it had, a, it was a red shirt and it had a Grim Reaper like thing, but, but a kid's Grim Reaper. And yeah. it just said, spoiler alert, everyone dies. Oh my God, that's, that's like my, that was my whole personality as a 10, from 10 years old on. I've covered it up pretty well. <laughs> that's when I read Gart. My parents let me like read at whatever year it came out. I was allowed to read anything. That was the first mistake they made. <laughs> you, you turned out okay. I think, I think, I think you turned out okay. Uh, okay, so <laughs> um, your book, Big Dirty Money, is uh, it's now out in paperback. Okay. As you know, I'm a big fan of the book. Um, I learned a lot reading it about white collar crime, so-called, and the history of it and all that stuff. Now, since last time we spoke, do you see the government going after white collar criminals more? How would you say that Biden is doing, relatively speaking? Okay. So like there's Biden, I think, you know, he's made the right noises. Um, in particular, his appointment of uh, Lisa Monaco to be deputy attorney general is key. I mean, this is the thing. Um, we know we've been complaining about Merrick Garland, but there's a separate appointment right below him, and that's Deputy Attorney General Monaco. And she just made a speech um, this week, or I should say it was last week, and her deputy below her, I'm using the wrong terms, the guy right below her also recently gave a speech kind of to the, uh, the white collar criminal defense bar warning them that the hammer is coming. Ooh. So 
this is what she said. Just, I, I think that, um, let me just read you the headline um, from, from, from last Friday from a, a corporate law firm, Arnold and Porter, the kind of place I had worked. Um, excellent firm. But just because if you do corporate law, you're also going to have to do some corporate criminal defense. The headline of this memo to clients, fabulous, is goodbye chicken shit club. Uh, DAG Monaco says prosecutors will be bold and pursue tough cases and won't be afraid to lose. Ooh, that's what we like. That's what we like because traditionally they they are afraid to lose. Yeah. And this is exactly like um, the speech um, that we saw earlier. Here's what I love, and this is exactly what I was kind of trying to say um, with regard to what Garland should be doing. She here's what she says. It says in announcing what might turn out to be a significant new approach. Monaco emphasized that DOJ prosecutors have a duty to prosecute cases if they have sufficient evidence, that they should pursue tough cases if the evidence is there, and that they should not be afraid to lose. She made plain that going forward, DOJ prosecutors should be bold. So, you know, I first saw this I, I think I first saw this, I knew she'd given the speech, but I think I first saw this when Jesse Eisenberg, author of the book, Chicken Shit Club, circulated. I think he feels quite uh, quite vindicated. I had written a piece that, the, uh, when I'm forgetting his name now, the uh, the guy who gave the, oh, I have it right here. The, the back on um, an early, oh no, this is, I'm sorry. This is Gensler saying there was gonna be a crackdown at the SEC. Hold on one second. Um, her, her deputy had said that there was going to be a crackdown. And no, I don't have his name, it doesn't matter. But at any rate, what's different here is the era of being afraid of the Arthur Anderson case is over. And so let me remind your readers what that was. Um, when Enron collapsed, um, there was a prosecution of uh, Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm, because one of the accountants down in Texas had shredded a lot of documents, right? And and they were Arthur Anderson, the firm was indicted and convicted and the whole thing just, you know, you can't move forward if you're an accounting firm giving out reputable audits. If you right. But then ultimately <laughs> what people may not remember is the conviction of Arthur Anderson was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't want to say on a technicality. I mean, it, it just, it has to, it was sort of a technicality. The guy did the bad things, but it technically did not fall within the criminal statute, which is you can't indict, you can't hold up a conviction if it doesn't. So that, the decision of the Supreme Court was, was correct. It was a correct one. But as a result of that, the narrative, talk about narrative, the narrative was you just destroyed, Department of Justice just destroyed an accounting firm, countless people's jobs and livelihood who had nothing to do with the, you know, the shredding, and this was a systemic problem in the accounting industry, blah, blah, blah. And so people were afraid. They were afraid. The second part of it was right after the global financial crisis, the meltdown, we had you know, Justice Department bringing a case against some people who ran a subprime mortgage-backed um, hedge fund, and those folks were acquitted. So there was everyone was afraid of losing, and everyone wants wins on their record. To have the Deputy Attorney General, Monaco, tell People below her, I'm not afraid of you bringing forward a case where the evidence is there, even if we might be outmanned by the lawyers, even if the jury might not think it's a good case. This is huge. This is huge. It's a culture changer is what it is. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's good. That's really good news. That that plus the thing in Rome, you know, Biden with this 15 percent tax on the uh, on all corporations, you know, globally. There's actually more, though, because they've also announced more um, funding and they're going to embed FBI agents right in the white collar crime areas inside of, of justice. 
Dave, this is the second speech in the last two weeks out of top tier justice officials saying, look out, we're coming for you. You know, I mean, not quite like that, but basically there will not be, you know, corporate crime impunity any longer. I like it. I think it's great. Um, Okay, I know you're pressed for time. So I want to ask one more question. You mentioned the Supreme Court. I had on my podcast last week by some grace of God, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. And I asked him, what's the deal with with expanding the Supreme Court? Is it going to happen? Are there plans to do it? And he said, no, there's no plans to do it. And the reason why is we're still in the making the case stage of things. So it's our it's it's incumbent on us, you know, people like me to go out and convince people that this is a good idea and how the current court is kind of, you know, biased and tilted and not diverse and this and that. So do you think we should expand the court? And if so, what would you like it to look like? Wow. Okay. So I've got three minutes to say my vision um, (laughs) of the court. By the way, the guy who worked for Monaco is John Carlin. I want to give him full credit. Oh, Carlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of him. Okay. Um, So there's the, there's, the problem with the court isn't just size. I think it should be expanded, but it might also be, you know, the kind of authority they have in terms of judicial review of, you know, if, if something is duly enacted by Congress and passed by the president, um, the question is how much authority should they have to overturn the statute? Um, why are they the last authority on the um, meaning of the constitution and so on? I mean, I don't want to give away Marbury versus Madison judicial review, but there's some interesting theories about cutting back on Supreme Court authority. Now, um, so uh, yeah, I think the court should be expanded. I don't know, there are different numbers being thrown around. You know, should, you know, I think the Supreme Court, you know, I think is, you know, is 12, you know, I can't have an even number, is, you know, 11 enough, is 15 enough. I don't think you want to get above 20 for deliberative purpose. I think you think just it's just kind of a mess, but I also think that lower federal courts also need to be expanded. We're a much bigger country than we were yeah. when we started. Um, and I also think term limits make sense. Now, let me just be clear about this. Everyone thinks that you can't do that without an amendment to the constitution, but like, I, you know, I don't think that's true. I have my constitution sitting here and it talks about, um, you know, the, in article three, section one, it doesn't say they have their job for life. It says, um, it says the, the judges, both of the Supreme and inferior court shall hold their offices during time of good behavior. So you can define how long the office is. The office could be 20 years. The office could be 18 years. It doesn't have to be, nothing in there says term for life. I think that would be a good good fix too, because I don't wanna know, I don't wanna have to worry about people's health. And I think people are reluctant to leave because of political reasons and everything else. And, uh, you know, they get they get old. It's it's, you know, you know death watches unbecoming. It's unbecoming. Yes. Well put. Well put. Well put. And and on that sunshiny note, <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Tom, author of Big Dirty Money, now available paperback. <laughs> Always so stand the right side of life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Immediate. Right. New motion. Completely new motion. Uh, that. Uh, 
that there be uh, immediate action uh, once the vote has been taken. Well, obviously, once the vote's been taken, you can't act on a resolution until you've voted. Right, right, in the in the light of fresh information from uh, Sib and Judith. Yes. Oh, not so fast, Reg. Reg, for God's sake, it's perfectly simple. All you've got to do is to go out of that door now and try to stop the Romans nailing him up. It's happening, Reg. Something's actually happening, Reg. <laughs> This episode of Prevail is brought to you by Tales.com. That's tales as in stories and not as in jacket and tie. Tales.com is the easiest way to record your family memories. If you're anything like me, the thoughts probably crossed your mind that you should have your mom or dad, or both, write down their life stories. But here's the problem. Most people have no clue where to start and we never get around to doing it. That's why we're partnering with Tales.com, to give families like yours a super easy way to capture your family's most important memories. Here's how it works. This is the really cool part. Tales has professional interviewers who interview your loved one over the phone, over Zoom, just like we do here on the podcast, over Zoom, and record their stories. Then Tales delivers a professionally produced podcast episode hosted on a private webpage that your family will cherish forever. Now we're heading into the holiday season. Mom and dad, it's always impossible to find something for them, right? This is the perfect, unique, meaningful gift for a loved one that instantly becomes family heirloom. Get started right away. No shipping necessary at Tails.com. And for listeners of Prevail, that's you. Tails is offering $20 off your first purchase. Just enter promo code Prevail at checkout at Tails.com. That's T-A-L-E-S.com with promo code Prevail for $20 off your first purchase. Check it out today. Tales.com. And now, back to the show. Thanks again to Jen Taub. Her book is called Big Dirty Money. This piece I'm about to read was published in Dame Magazine under the title Following the Dirty Money. My original title was just Sit Like Dragon on Rich Guy's Hoard, which is also not a, not a terribly good title. Lots of times... In the last four or five years, whenever I started doing this because of the Dirty Rubles, the book I wrote, and being on Twitter and just talking about this stuff all the time, I'm often asked to offer a theory of everything, a one-size-fits-all explanation for why, why the United States teeters on the brink of tyranny, why seemingly intelligent and wealthy people backed a mobbed-up mountebank like Trump, why Russia behaves as it does. Why sketchy folks like Steve Bannon and Eric Prince and Patrick Byrne flit around doing shady shit and rarely seem to face consequences, and so on. So let me say up front, I cannot do that. It's impossible. Every character in this global drama, whether Jared Kushner or Rebecca Mercer or Semyon Mogilevich, is his or her own person with motives unique to him or her. And just because individuals happen to have some things in common, both members of the Federalist Society, partners at Jones Day, paramours of Maria Butina, etc., that doesn't mean that they're all in cahoots. Six people won't agree on where to have dinner. It strains credulity to believe that a lot more than six people secretly run the world in perfect monolithic Congress. And yet, enough of the business of world running is done in secret by individuals of dubious origin, unelected by any government, sitting on riches of inexplicable provenance, that we would be remiss not to pull back the curtain for a gander. Here are the things I know for certain. Number one, 
It's about two things, money and power. One begets the other. Both are equally important, but the latter is more difficult to quantify. The only way to so much as glimpse this ugly beast is to follow the money. Number two, an unimaginably vast amount of wealth exists offshore, quote unquote, beyond the reach of the long arm of the law. Money is parked there in three ways. Legitimately, to protect its seizure from corrupt governments, as with Jews safeguarding their assets in the 1930s and 40s. Shadily, to avoid or evade taxation, as with uber-rich libertarians in the United States and other Western countries. And, feloniously, to hide it from criminal law enforcement, as with mafiosi and corrupt officials of so-called third-world countries. As Oliver Bullo explains in his must-read Moneyland, the inside story of the crooks and kleptocrats who rule the world, these holdings are a combination of, quote, the legitimately scared money mixed with the naughty tax-avoiding money mixed with the evil looted money. Number three, the underworld economy, the dirty money of transnational organized crime, accounts for more than $2 trillion annually by some estimates which would represent about 3 to 4% of the world's gross domestic product. If the underworld were a country, it would rank fifth, after the US, China, Japan, and Germany, ahead of Great Britain, France, India, and Canada, and way ahead of Russia. Now, combine that mob money with the wealth being hidden offshore by the mega-rich, and mix that with loot boosted from the national coffers of the Moldovas and Angolas of the world. And what you've got is a hoard of money so big it would take an army of dragons to guard it. Number four, that dragon's hoard of money, that huge expense of it, is shielded from taxation. This means that the federal budget of the United States and the budgets of Great Britain and Germany and Canada and France and so forth cannot draw from this Lake Superior-sized pool of cash. The difference must be made up by ordinary citizens like you and me. When rich scumbags avoid taxation, the rest of us pick up the tab. This is a form of theft Reverse Robin Hood style. They are stealing from us. Number five, criminals can't pay taxes. Not because they don't want to. If mobsters were offered a deal where they paid a percentage of earnings to the government in exchange for immunity, they would take it. But because they can't very well declare income from smuggling heroin from Afghanistan, sex trafficking teenagers from Burma, dealing arms to sanction warlords in Libya, bilking Medicare or offing some recalcitrant underling and making it look like an accident. The challenge of how to wash illicitly gained wealth so that it can be used legitimately has been the focus of criminal masterminds since the days of Meyer Lansky before the Second World War. Number six, this is a big one. This hoard of money, legitimately scared, naughty, and evil, is safeguarded by real-life dragons, politicians, attorneys, accountants, journalists, media personalities, financiers, real estate brokers, art dealers, lobbyists, publicists, fundraisers, TV and movie producers, royal families, failed New York developers turned reality show stars, and so on. Their job, essentially, is to protect the fortunes of the insanely rich. They are paid handsomely for this. Sit like dragon on rich guy's hoard is a multi-billion dollar industry and everyone who profits from it, whether a lawyer in London, an accountant in Manhattan, or a senator in West Virginia, has zero incentive to blow up the system. Their livelihood literally depends on it. That's what we're up against. That's the enemy. Not the handful of mega-rich people, but their well-heeled parasitical underlings. Number seven. 
These mega-rich cats are not bound to a single sovereign nation. They bounce from jurisdiction to jurisdiction as they please, depending on what they need at any given time. They might do their banking in Luxembourg or Cyprus, sue for libel in the UK, incorporate their businesses at St. Kitts, claim residency in the Caymans, establish trusts in South Dakota, anything to minimize their exposure and maximize their profit. In effect, these ultra-high net worth individuals are citizens of a different nation entirely, one that Oliver Bullo calls Moneyland. Money flows from country to country, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, with the click of a mouse. It moves to be better saved, better hidden, or better spent. All of this is to serve the very rich, these moneylanders. Number eight. As my friend Lincoln's Bible explains in The World Beneath, her podcast about the history of spies and mobsters, Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano spent the Second World War fighting the Nazis despite having no financial incentive to do so. Their syndicate was subsequently infiltrated and taken over in the 1990s by the Russian mob. Russia, as LB puts it, invaded us from the underworld up. Vladimir Putin, once head of the corrupt FSB, was installed by these criminals. The Russian Federation is a mafia state. Oligarchs don't get to be oligarchs without paying their tribute. Thus, the underworld has at least one entire government through which it can launder its illicit loot. And that government has nukes. Number nine. Money gets mixed together, good with bad, and then is moved along. Facebook took money from Russian oligarchs. Twitter took money from Russian oligarchs. Russian oligarchs buy British football clubs and American basketball teams. Wealthy foreigners own real estate in New York, in London, in Miami. Persian Gulf oil underwrites Hollywood and Silicon Valley, and so on. Not all of this is necessarily bad. Capitalism requires capital to innovate and thrive. But it does happen. Number 10. Let's take an example. Jared Kushner, while a U.S. citizen and a key advisor to the former guy, has cozy relationships with MBS, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, with Bibi Netanyahu, the former Prime Minister of Israel, old friend of the Kushner family, with Tom Barrick, the newly indicted financier accused of spying for the UAE. There is evidence to suggest that while working for the White House, Kushner used the cudgel of U.S. foreign policy and possibly also classified intelligence to enrich his family's real estate business by securing a loan on his white elephant of a property at 666 Fifth Avenue. According to crack reporting by Catherine Eban at Vanity Fair, who's been on this podcast, by the way, Kushner scuttled the pandemic response in the spring of 2020 because he believed, wrongly, that COVID-19 would only affect blue states and thus help Trump's re-election prospects. These are not the actions of a guy with even a scintilla of loyalty to the country that issues his passport. Kushner is a moneylander. 11. The accumulation of this much wealth necessitates dealing with unsavory characters in hostile foreign governments. Opium comes from Afghanistan. Diamonds come from Botswana, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Russia. Nations that are not fighting some forever civil or regional war don't need arms. Our State Department writes an entire report about the countries, Burma, Turkmenistan, Venezuela, that are hotspots for human trafficking. To acquire this much wealth, one must be comfortable trading in human misery. Let me say that again, because this is really an important point. To acquire this much wealth, one must be comfortable trading in human misery. It's what HR professionals call a BFOQ, Bonafide Occupational Qualification. Number 12. 
The nihilistic moneylander mindset is nicely expressed by Orson Welles' Harry Lyme, the villain of the film The Third Man, which was written by Graham Greene, a former intelligence officer. Lyme has accumulated his fortune by selling watered-down medicine to hospitals. Children die because of this, but he has gotten rich. Looking down from the top of a Ferris wheel at the people below, Lyme says to his friend, Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spin? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. The only way you can save money nowadays. The third man came out in 1949. This shit has been going on forever. Number 13. The pandemic rages on, largely because of anti-vax disinformation. Climate change, meanwhile is a ticking time bomb that will end one in eight species of life on the planet and make human life unsustainable in many places around the world. By some estimates, 150 million human beings will die because of this. The Moneyland types don't give a crap. Not when there's so much money to be made from fossil fuel. They are right now, in real time, channeling Harry Lime, calculating how many dots they can afford to spare. And if you're listening to this thinking, I'm overly pessimistic about the state of the earth, I point to not one, not two, but three gazillionaires who recently went into space. Is that a lark? Or do they know this planet's doomed? 14. Very few people in positions of authority, politicians, press, talk about this stuff. Even when certain individuals become particularly egregious, they are generally made out to be rogue actors, lone wolves. In reality, they all play the same game. The difference between Joe Manchin and, say, Cory Booker is a matter of degree. Meanwhile, our supine mainstream media, which ultimately feeds at the same poison trough, invests more time in both sidesing vaccines and covering the war on Christmas than shining a spotlight on all the looted treasure flowing back and forth. Number 15. Last point. The solution to the problem is to hunt down the money. Expose it. Seize it. Tax it. Destroy the system. Tear it out by the roots. The civilized world must band together to eradicate tax havens, just as it banded together to eradicate smallpox. Happily, there appears to be some movement on this front. We talked about this before with the Biden meeting in Rome with the G20 and the 15% tax, right? But the complete annihilation of the system would necessitate slaying, metaphorically, all of these rapacious dragons guarding the horde. The politicians, attorneys, accountants, journalists, media personalities, financiers, real estate brokers, art dealers, lobbyists, publicists, fundraisers, TV and movie producers, royal families, failed New York developers, turned reality show stars, and so on. It's David taking on an army of Goliaths, and his slingshot just broke. Nevertheless, it's a fight we have to win, or else it's the end of life on Earth as we know it. And I have faith that we can. I really do. I believe in us. The name of this podcast is not Put Your Head in the Sand or Despair or eh. It's called Prevail for a reason. So thanks for listening. Thanks to Jen Tob. We'll see you next week. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sophia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signadella, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. 
please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail.